Hello, folks, and welcome to Treks in Sci-Fi. I'm Rico, your host master. <laughs> master Rico. Yes, I am a Jedi master. Oh, has everyone been watching the uh, the new season of Clone Wars? Season four now we're in? Uh, it's been pretty good. I, I'm liking it. Uh, you know, kind of, uh, well, we'll talk about that later. Hey, anyway, today is October the 2nd, 2011, and uh, it is podcast 351. I'm back after a two-week lag. Uh, yes, last week, uh, Rick and Amy Moyer filled in, did a TNG episode, commentary, Shades of Grey. Loved it. Uh, so happy with that. And uh, lots of uh, great response and seemed seems like people really enjoyed uh, what they did. And I, and I, again, really appreciate them uh, filling in. Last week, I, I was out of town or, or on my way out of town on Sunday to uh, Canada, to Montreal for a quick little trip for work. So uh, that helped a lot. So thanks again, Rick and Amy. This week, though, on Treks in Sci-Fi, we are going to look at not Star Trek, not a Trek episode, but a movie. Uh, a classic uh, sci-fi monster movie from the 50s, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, the Americanized version of that first Godzilla film uh, with Raymond Burr and, and all that fun stuff. That's going to be the main topic for today's show. But wanting to do a movie, uh, kind of uh, a monster movie of that era, and what better one to start with than Godzilla. So we're going to be covering that. Uh, got some Trek news, some things starting to really... You know, rumble and move uh, along the movie lines and other cool things. So we're going to talk about that today and, and a whole lot more. So uh, sit back and uh, let's get on with it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Treks in Sci-Fi podcast. Scotty, beat me up. Fascinating. Stand by to receive our transmission. All right, again, welcome everyone. I am Rico, uh, still Rico. <laughs> oh, uh, it's a bit tricky getting going here uh, on a Sunday morning. Uh, each time I do the podcast, I, I you know I feel that way just a tiny bit, uh, but uh, especially happens when I've been uh, away for two weeks, and you know it's uh, it it seems like it's always. Uh, a little trickier and a little bit more to get into it. But anyway, enough about uh, stuff like that. Uh, how's everybody? I hope everyone's well. It's been a, uh, as usual, busy couple of weeks for me. I had to take a business trip to Montreal, Canada, and I have to say they drive like crazy up there. That's all I have to say. Now, you know, I've been in a lot of towns, a lot of cities, driven in a lot of places. So I'd say it wasn't that much worse or different than uh, anywhere uh, else I've been. Even Detroit and Michigan gets a little nuts. It, it all depends on the day and the time and the location a little bit. Uh, actually, the, the thing I noticed were the trucks, though, on the road. They really seem to zoom along. Here, at least in Michigan, they, they seem to drive a little bit more conservatively. Uh, truck traffic and the cars zip around them and stuff. But, man, in some places in Montreal, the, the trucks are setting the pace. So, uh, But that uh, that's not what we're really here to talk about. Let's talk about other stuff. Has uh, everyone been watching some of the new TV on this fall? I, I'm trying to keep up. I think I mentioned a couple of weeks back or whenever I did that fall TV show, 
was that just two weeks ago? Probably was. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, I've uh, I got this rule of three. I'm calling it uh, not like the two rule of two for the Sith, but I'm trying to watch most of these new shows, the ones I'm interested in at least, uh, for three episodes, and then kind of decide if I'm going to continue or not. And I'll just kind of give you a quick, quick, real. Uh, brief rundown. Uh, Ringer with Sarah Michelle Geller. I've, I've hit the three episode mark and, and I'm a little undecided. I, I may squeeze in one more episode. It, it, I, I should decide, you know, based on that it's not really hugely grabbing me, that it's probably not worth my, my time since there are so many things to watch this year, especially since a lot of the returning shows or some of the returning shows have not come back even yet. Like tomorrow we get House back, uh, which I'm a big fan. I've, I've watched all that, and I'm looking forward to this year. and it, It's its final season, so that's another Monday show. Um, but uh, so uh, Ringer, it's probably not going to be one I'm going to continue with. It, it, I'll tell you what, if it didn't have Sarah Michelle Geller, who I think is really terrific actually on the show, I would have probably dropped it definitely. Uh, it, it's just the storyline is, eh, it's like, eh. It just doesn't have enough there for me to really hold my interest, probably. Okay, uh, I said I was going to keep this brief. Uh, next up, uh, let's see, The Secret Circle, the witchcraft CW show that is uh, some of the people that work on Vampire Diaries are working on this show. Actually, it is, uh, I don't know if it's its just that, but it's the, the originator uh, of the books that these two series are based on uh, wrote uh, Vampire Diaries and Secret Circle. So far, I've got... I've done two. I've got one on the DVR on my TiVo to watch. The Secret Circle is probably a, a definite to drop off the, the my radar. The characters aren't really grabbing me. They're all too a little angsty. You know, it's a teen drama a little bit, so it has that. But I, I don't know. The Vampire Diaries seems a little bit more serious. I like it a lot. Uh, it grabbed me pretty quickly. And maybe it's the, the actors, the storylines, I'm not sure what. But uh, this one, not so much. So that's going to drop probably. Terra Nova, let's go on to that. I've only seen one episode of that, so I've got a couple more to get my rule of three in. Uh, I'm, I was pretty okay with the first episode. It has a little, a, a few little moments in it and a few little things that, that I you know, wasn't super pleased with or whatever, but I think it, the production is amazing. And, you know, it's, it, it, we'll see what happens. They, this show I know has been modified and tweaked. They've got uh, people from the Star Trek, uh, you know, franchises and television, especially Brandon Braga is working on this one. You know, people, you know, have mixed feelings about him. Think, think he didn't do a very good job on Trek and, uh, well, we'll see here. I'm going to give it a couple more episodes, and uh, I have a feeling because of the budget and it got, I guess, kind of middle-of-the-road ratings in its first outing uh, that this series will be lucky to continue past its first 13 episodes. They've only done 13 episodes, I think, and they're definitely going to show all of them because I think it was expensive. Well, I shouldn't say definitely. They, Fox can always change their mind, but we'll see what happens with this series. I, I, I predict 13 episodes and done is is my guess <laughs> let me grab my tea here and i got some nice green tea ah that's good it's good stuff uh arizona green tea with a little honey is good perfect good good uh podcasting drink <laughs> all right what else do we have oh sci-fi oh person of interest not super sci-fi. This one is the one with Michael Emerson, who has been on Lost, and James Kazivil, whatever. I'll just call him Jesus, since he played Jesus, right? Uh, 
the uh, the show is pretty good. Two episodes so far. You know, this is the one about the supercomputer that is fed all this info from the world uh, electronically, cameras, uh, cell phone information, email, anything it can grab onto electronically. And then the the point of this is the the Michael Emerson. Uh, Mr. Finch, he's called in this series, is he invented this system, this computer, to to pull all this information in and then have a way to sort of decipher it. And it, the the premise was that it was created after like 9-11 to search for terrorist activity. But what the machine has been finding is that there are a lot of uh, things and, and possible things that are going to happen to people and crimes and danger and stuff that uh, the machine has sort of it deems irrelevant that it, it isn't necessarily a threat to national security or the country but these are things still that would involve somebody being killed perhaps or, or bad things happening to them and uh, the mr finch michael emerson's character decided at some point that he didn't want this data to just be lost nothing to be done with it so he gets the uh, you know James Cazaville Jesus guy to uh, who's like an ex CIA ex everything you know he's kind of the Jack Bauer character to help out with these things and each week it looks like they're gonna just sort of have a new situation to to decipher and and it's not like they're given a lot of information they're just sort of giving an given a name a number really uh, I think it's their social security numbers and they find the person and then and then decide what to do about that. So far, it looks like it's just based, I think, around New York. I'm not sure if they're just, you know, if the Finch character is taking, you know, only the numbers in our local vicinity and, and helping those people. So uh, anyway, uh, the show is pretty cool. It's on Thursday nights. I, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Uh, I like the premise. They 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 mix things up. Like the last episode, they showed some of the past and when Finch was working on his machine and and stuff. So uh, if you haven't given this one a shot, you, if you go over to CBS.com and you can find the URL over there. Anyway, CBS is showing and streaming the first two episodes for those that don't have cable or a way to see this or didn't tape it. You can watch the first two episodes online for free over uh, on CBS.com. So check that out. I, I think if you watch a couple of them, you might get hooked. I, I, I think this one's going to be a keeper for me. So uh and is that it for the new stuff I think that I've been watching? Pretty much. Uh, there may be a couple other little things I'm forgetting, but uh, that was those are the main ones. We still have uh, a couple of other fantasy-type series that will be premiering more later in this month in October. Grimm and that other, uh, oh, what's that other fairy tale? Once Upon a Time, yes, with uh, Jennifer Morrison, who was on House and in the Star Trek movie. Oh, speaking of the Star Trek movie, actually, let me take a break, and I'll come back and talk a little bit about Trek, and then we're going to do Godzilla. Godzilla. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela from the Anomaly Podcast. And you're listening to... Sci-fi. Okay, Star Trek, the f- space, the final frontier. Yes, uh, a few things. First story: the the movie is moving along. They are scouting locations, uh, planning to film probably over the winter time. And J.J. Abrams, of course, is back uh, directing. Uh, the cast is getting prepped, uh, and I, I'm pretty excited. They still have not announced a new release date. I would not be surprised if it's a summer 2013, 
still kind of hoping for a, a year or so from now, year and a couple months, the holidays of 2012, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, the holiday 2012 season, I think, also is the same as the first part of The Hobbit coming out. So that could be something that would steer them away from that season. I don't know. Who knows how these guys make these decisions, right? Uh, the Star Trek comic series I wanted to mention again, that is a new ongoing IDW comic series has started. Issue one is out. I think issue two should be coming out here in another week or two. Um, the reason I'm mentioning this is a couple things. One, they are doing some retelling of original series episodes in, in the J.J. verse of Trek. And that's the way they started. They're doing uh, the Gary Mitchell story, Where No Man Has Gone Before, for the first couple of issues. And then they're going to get into a, a, a take on the Galileo 7. But one of the main things I wanted to point out and mention about this comic book series is it has been reported by the guys writing the new movie that as we get closer to the new movie coming, they will be there will be little things dropped into the comic book series, this ongoing series uh, set in this new J.J. Trekverse, that are going to be uh, things that will relate to the movie, such as characters, situations, scenes, planets, perhaps. Any anyway, not huge stuff, I think, and it probably won't matter that much if you haven't read it or seen it. Uh, until you see the new movie, I doubt that there's going to be, like, you're going to need to have read the comic to know what's going on or anything like that. They would never do that. The comic has obviously a limited audience. However, for those that are into comics and, and are following this series, it may be one added little thing to, uh, you know, keep you reading it or make you want to read it, perhaps. Just thought I would mention that. It will probably be a few months before that starts to show up and appear anyway, since we are a good year plus maybe even a, a year and a half or more away from the next movie. So next up, then the other, probably the coolest Trek story that's come out in the last week or two officially is that Star Trek The Next Generation is going to be completely converted over to Blu-ray. We are going to get the entire seven season, 200 and something episodes, right? Or is it 100? No, it's 178 or something like that. That's terrible. I should know that right off the top of my head, right? Anyway, all seven seasons of TNG are going to be put onto Blu-ray. Now, the way they're doing this is, is a few uh, things I wanted to say. First off, they are going to release, and it comes out, I believe, towards the end of January this year. Or, well, next year, early next year. They're going to release a four-episode uh, sort of Blu-ray sampler set. It is going to be Sins of the Father, Inner Light, and I think Encounter at Farpoint, uh, those two parts to the pilot episode. So four episodes in a way total, uh, a Blu-ray set. This was to basically give them sort of a practice run through redoing the episodes in Blu-ray. They are going back to the original 35-millimeter film. Yes, TNG was, was filmed. It wasn't uh, shot on videotape like some of the later uh, Trek was. I think Voyager, I'm not sure about Deep Space Nine. I'll have to look that up. I'm pretty sure Voyager was shot on video. Anyway, they are converting it from the 35-millimeter film. They're basically going back to the original film and re-sort of doing it and editing it back for these remastered, cleaned-up Blu-ray versions. Now, 35-millimeter film has very little large or high resolution, much higher than Blu-ray, actually. 
So it's going to look gorgeous. It's not going to be widescreen. Uh, it is still the sort of 4x3 type or 1.33 to 1, I think it is, uh, format that you would see or, or, you know, that it was shot in. Uh, they didn't, you know, they could take those frames of the 35 millimeter film and, you know, cut a widescreen version out of those frames, but they don't want to, they're not going to do that. They, they weren't, it wasn't shot or com the, the shots weren't composited and, and done by the directors and the, the cinematographers in that, you know, with that in mind. So, they would not do that. Uh, you, you can obviously expand them on your TV if you want, and different TVs can have different functions for that. But I'm not really, I don't have got a problem with that. The Blu-rays that they did for TOS, it's the same situation. It, it has sort of a black bar on the left and the right because it's a 4x3, and I have a widescreen uh, HD TV. So, and the special effects, the ship shots, the, you know, in space, planets, uh, you know, any kind of special effect that was put in are sort of going to be redone in a way, but not completely like they were redone for the remastered TOS versions. They filmed and, and made footage of these, um, you know, of models in that for TNG, of the Enterprise, you know, Klingon ships and everything else. And that stuff, those effect shots are, are, are still around, and they are going to take those uh, effect shots. And they were originally composited onto video. In other words, if they had a, you know, a flyby of the Enterprise and it was firing a phaser, that, that was filmed, and then it was put into a, you know, a computer machine device, uh, a compositor, and they would take the element uh, that was shot of the model, insert any other little stars and, you know, things they needed to do, and, and then the, the shot was eventually only on video. So they have to take the original model of photography stuff and now composite it for high def. So that's going to mean they're going to sort of have to recreate these uh, special effects. Now, with all that, what that really boils down to and means is the special effects are going to look crisper and better and, and more high def and, and higher resolution but they will not look as drastically different as they did when they say went with TOS to uh, remastered enhanced editions. These will look just more clean, better, and so forth. They may add a few little bells and whistles. It's hard to say right now until we get our hands on maybe that sampler set and see what they're doing. If they decide to change or tweak anything much. Um, things that are purely a special effect that were computer generated. Like I'm thinking of the the big uh, space creature things that were like an encounter at Farpoint. I believe those were all like created, uh, you know, not on a model. There was no physical shooting a film for those. So those may look different to a degree when they do them uh, for these sets. But that's just one example. We'll we'll know better in a few months. And as these sets come out, you know, next year in 2012 is the 25th, believe it or not, 25 years since TNG started back in 87. So they, they, you know, this was a, a year CBS thought it would be a nice anniversary gift to start releasing these season sets. Uh, I believe they're going to come out in season sets, Blu-ray editions uh, of TNG. So that's that's cool news. Uh, it's going to probably be, you know, more money out of us Trekkie, you know, our Trekkie wallets. But I, I think it'll be worth it for those that want to hold off. I mean, I know these things eventually get repackaged into cheaper, you know, whole you know, whole series sets and and that. But I'll of course be out there buying each season as they come. Uh, I have to podcast on them all again, right? <laughs> no, no, we're not doing that. High def podcasts, yeah. So, uh, so that's cool news, though. I mean, it's it's really a little a little bit surprising to me. You know, I think some of the added. Uh, 
you know, sort of Star Trek, uh, you know, fervor that happened after the J.J. film and, and that helped, you know, to make CBS believe that there'd be a market to do this. This is not going to be a cheap prospect by any means for them. This isn't just, you know, sort of some quick slapdash up conversion and then put them out on disc or anything. This is going to take a lot of work and effort and money to do these uh, conversions. And uh, so I'm I'm just really happy that they're doing it. So uh, one last story, IMAX. Uh, the uh, I've talked about it. Actually, it's come up a couple times already on the show, but the the 2009 J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie is back in IMAX this week for one week only for only $7 AMC theaters. If you are in an area uh, of the country, uh, I think it's just maybe U.S. based as far as I know, but AMC movie theaters that have IMAX theaters, and you can find this out. I put a, a post up uh actually on the forum, and I need to put one on the main site, but just search. Uh, I think Trek Movie has a story on it, uh, but just check AMC Theaters, IMAX, and you could probably find a place near you if you're in the United States. I've actually got a couple theaters near, you know, only probably, I think they're both about a half hour away that I could see it at. I, I was going to go yesterday, but one thing led to another, and I didn't get out to see it. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to make it during the week, because I think it's at bad times. It's not like it's running like a regular movie. It's just a couple times each uh, day that it's showing. So, uh, But check your local listings. If uh, you never saw it in theaters or if you never saw it in IMAX, I did actually see it in IMAX in its original run two, th- two years ago. So uh, it's I'd love to go see it again. I think it's a great movie, but uh, I'm not sure if I'll have time. So just wanted to pass that along. Uh, one more break for me, and we'll talk about the Godzilla after that. Ooh, he's so big. Godzilla, king of the monsters. Alive, surging up from the depths of the sea on a tidal wave of terror to wreak vengeance on mankind. Godzilla, king of the monsters. It's alive. A gigantic beast stalking the earth, crushing all before it in a cyclonic cavalcade of electrifying horror. Raging through the streets on a rampage of total destruction. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, incredible titan of terror, wiping out a city of six million in a holocaust of flame. Jet planes cannot destroy it. Bombs cannot kill it. All modern weapons fail. Is this the end of our civilization? Can the scientists of the world find a way to stop this creature? For the answer, see Godzilla, King of the Monsters. You may wish to deny it, but your eyes tell you it's true. A tale to stun the mind. More fantastic than any ever written by Jules Verne. More terrifying than any ever shown on the screen. Awesome, incredible, unbelievable. A story beyond your wildest dreams. Dynamic violence. Savage action. Spectacular thrills. Godzilla, king of the monsters. Fantastic beyond comprehension. Gripping beyond compare. Astounding beyond belief. The mightiest monster of them all. See Godzilla, King of the Monsters. All right, that was the trailer, movie trailer, to Godzilla, King of the Monsters, the 1956 black and white uh, Americanized Godzilla film. The, well, let me, I guess, give you a little bit of... uh, 
background and thoughts at first from me about this, uh, why I decided to do this. I, I for, for a time during my, you know, growing up period, besides watching Star Trek, I watched a lot of Godzilla and monster movies. You know, they would be playing sometimes every day during the week. Uh, after school, I would catch them. Or on the weekends, there was always sort of a matinee movie on TV. And again, you know, showing my age, you know, although it's not, you know, not that long back. But, you know, this was uh, back in the day where you didn't have videotapes. Back in the day, you didn't have DVDs. You didn't have streaming. So you had to catch this stuff when you could on television or in the movie theaters. I don't think I ever saw this this movie in a movie theater that I can recall. But, uh, but anyway, there were uh, these movies were just fun and you know get a thing of popcorn and sit down and munch it and watch you know these crazy monster movies now the this first Godzilla film unlike some of the later Godzilla movies is is, is a very serious movie uh, some of the later ones Godzilla becomes actually sort of uh, a good guy he becomes sort of humorous and lots of things start to happen and change his character but here he is just a big baddie and he is stomping on Tokyo and destroying the city and is out to kill lots of people. <laughs> so this is not a, uh, even though you don't really see, you don't really literally see a lot of that in the film itself. I just uh, watched it again this morning uh, via Netflix. It's on Netflix streaming uh, here in the United States, at least, to capture some uh, audio clips from it. But, uh, it, you know, it's not like uh, these days where they show so much in movies. So so I wanted to give you a little bit of that kind of personal background on it. So I'm a big fan of these kinds of movies. I don't probably watch them like I used to as much. So much other stuff to watch these days. Uh, the The development of this movie is kind of interesting. Basically what happened started out is there was a Japanese film, uh, a Japanese film called Godzilla that was made uh, around 1954. It uh, was directed by a guy named Nushiro Honda. And I'm going to already apologize for anybody who has Japanese language background or Japanese listeners or whatever. If you guys know this and I'm, I'm saying some of the names uh, involved in these productions I, and I slaughter them, I apologize. <laughs> Lynn knows Japanese. I don't know Japanese. She's the language person in the house. Uh, I've said a few times on the podcast, my English is, is, is barely good enough sometimes. No, I think I can speak pretty well, but... Anyway, uh, the the movie, again, was originally a Japanese film. Uh, it starred Akira Takanarada, Momoko Kuchi, uh, Akiki. <laughs> I'm already dying here. Help me some way. Harata, Akiko Harata, Tashi Shimura. Okay, that's good enough. Those are some people in the original Japanese version, uh, which, again, was uh, produced by uh, a company called Tomokyo... Uh, Tanaka, and they're a Japanese film company. The the sort of focus and, and interesting thing about this, obviously everyone knows J- Japan, you know, two bombs were dropped in Japan about, you know, roughly 10 years-ish later or something. Well, not quite 10. You know, Japan had been obviously affected by uh, bombs that were dropped there, uh, the idea of radiation and, and subsequent radiation poisoning for their people. There was also this other incident that that's uh, kind of interesting. the The opening scene for the for the Japanese version of the movie, uh, there's this little fishing boat that's out in the water, and there's a blinding flash of light, and, and it's destroyed. Well, 
there was a uh, this was this scene was inspired uh by the way oh also the 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 uh japanese version godzilla is actually called gojira i again i'm not sure if i'm saying that it's g-o-j-i-r-a that is the japanese version and you can see that also on netflix uh with uh subtitles for the movie but uh, gojira the opening scene of that movie is on this fishing boat and this scene was inspired by an actual real-world event. Uh, there was a uh, U.S. testing uh, test uh, of a hydrogen bomb that occurred uh, over uh, at a place called Bikini Atoll, uh, which I believe is a small island uh, area. And there was a real Japanese fishing boat. Uh, the, it's called the Lucky Dragon 5 that was... Uh, overwhelmed when the uh, the U.S. Uh, Castle Bravo was the ship that um, they did this nuclear test and it had had a yield of 15 megatons. It was supposed to only be 6 megatons. I guess military personnel, some of the native islands or the island natives. Bikini Atoll, I think, is actually an island. Uh, but And then several of the people on the ship uh, were uh, they thought they were going to be all okay and in the you know safety zone, but because it was a l much larger blast, uh, these people ended up suffering radiation sickness. At least one of them died eventually a few months later, and this created sort of this uh, fear of of nuclear radiation and and bombs and what that was doing to the you know to people to the environment and all of that. So it's very understandable that this because of this nuclear fallout fear and 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 situation in Japan that they would make a uh, a movie where the idea and I think I've got a clip later in the show that I'll play for you the idea is that this creature was basically some kind of you know organism that had survived since you know the age of the dinosaur but the nuclear radiation sort of had re you know, regenerated it or brought it to life and made it grow up into this big bad monster, and that that is the premise that the this movie was uh, based on, and that I think is an interesting uh, concept. Uh, you know, and it, it's it just I think it puts the movie in perspective as it being a very much a product of its time and where it was made and all of that. What happened though for the U.S. production? Uh, is uh, there was a guy named Edmund Goldman who he found and watched the original Godzilla or Gojira movie uh, in a theater in, in China, in Chinatown in California. He saw it and he decided to, you know, he really liked it. He decided to buy the international rights, uh, actually got the rights uh, for only $25,000, which seems crazy these days, right? You get the rights to a foreign movie for $25,000. Well, you, you, you can't even like buy some cars for that. So, uh, But then he sold them off to a company called Jewel Enterprises, and it was a production company owned by Richard Kay and Harry Ribrick. And they, uh, they got backing from other people, and eventually they decided to release this movie in America. Now, Back in the 50s, not too long after World War II, to release a Japanese movie with subtitles and everything's in Japanese in America, eh, probably maybe not the best idea, might may not go over too well. So what they did, kind of in a, in a clever way, I think, some people, you know, the, the, 
there are movie purists and stuff out there that would say like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you know you're watching the Americanized version of God- Godzilla or Gojira. You should be just watching the original version in Japanese with subtitles. And I'm like, yeah, you know, well, for one, the main reason I'm doing it this way is, I mean, I've seen both and I can appreciate both. But the main reason I'm doing it this way is that it's very hard to do an audio podcast with uh, a foreign movie with subtitles and and capture audio clips from that for you. Unless everyone listening speaks Japanese, it's going to be pretty tricky. So that's kind of the why I'm doing this. And I'm trying to cover a little bit of both. So I hope you guys understand. For the purists, if you shut out the podcast and disgust right now, well, sorry. Uh, see you later. <laughs> Anyway, but I think it's a pretty unique way that they, they you know, they came up with doing this. The, the way they, they did it is they, they got an, an actor, uh, Raymond Burr, pretty, pretty uh, well-known actor. Even back then at the time, I think he had done quite a few things. And uh, so they, they brought a, an actor of some stature in, and they sort of trickly, tricky filmed scenes with him uh, in different spots in this movie and slipped them in, and then also had, had him kind of put a narration during the movie in as well which is which is actually a lot of his dialogue is, is narrated over the film and I think it works pretty well I, I mean it's kind of I like the idea that you've got this he plays a reporter in the movie his name is actually Steve Martin like the comedian uh, no relation I'm sure but uh, he's a reporter he's he's there he stops over in Japan to visit a friend and then all this happens. So that you know, it's not like uh, somebody just living there, uh, an American. He is a reporter, which which makes sense. It allows him access to certain things that are happening in the movie, and it all works pretty well. Uh, I, I will say, if you're listening to this podcast and you've never seen Godzilla, and you're kind of a you know sci-fi geeky person, you should definitely watch both of these. It, I don't think it really matters which one you watch first. Although I think if you probably really don't care, I might watch Gojira, the first, uh, the Japanese version, and then watch the Americanized version for it. Now, again, this is a 50s monster movie. Don't expect, you know, top-notch 2011 Hollywood Transformer-like special effects. There's a lot of stuff in this where you'll obviously say, hey, that just looks like a little toy model and, and things. And I think Godzilla himself is a guy in a big monster suit, if I remember correctly. I think there's some detail here that I'll talk about as the show goes on. But anyway, that is the sort of overall premise of the thing, the the, the start of it, how the Japanese version was inspired and created, and then the American version was made. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this, but I want to start playing some clips. So let's do uh, one of the, uh, the early clips. It actually starts the the this uh, version I'm reviewing, the '56 Americanized version, starts sort of in the aftermath of the attacks that Godzilla has done on on Tokyo. So uh, you find uh, Raymond Burr's character, Steve Martin, kind of in this rubble. He's pretty hurt. He's got blood kind of coming off his arm and his head, and he looks in bad shape. And and that's the way this starts out, and and you'll get some of his narration to begin with. So listen to this first clip. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown, an unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. There were once many people here who could have told of what they saw. Now there are only a few.
My name is Steve Martin. I'm a foreign correspondent for United World News. I was headed for an assignment in Cairo when I stopped off in Tokyo for a social call. But it turned out to be a visit to the living hell of another world. Yeah, so there we get uh, introduced to the Raymond Burr character, Steve Martin. Uh, of course, Raymond Burr is well known to everyone as playing, you know, he played the uh, character Ironside for years on television and many other roles throughout his career. And I think he does a, a very good job in this movie. He, he's he's not, you know, he's not overbearing. He's pretty subtle. And he actually is replacing, they had a sort of a comical reporter uh, in the original Gojira film uh, that he kind of replaces that idea of that character uh, in that movie. Uh, in this one, they, they replace him. And they try to kind of take out some of the more strong, kind of eh, slightly anti-American, you know, there's there's a little bit of that, a little bit of tone and certain things in the original film. They they kind of tweak that down a notch or two for the American, you know, through some through the for the American version through some uh, editing, and that is uh, that helps a little bit, uh, you know, because of the the bombings, you know, of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and the you know the it was a way to ease you know the American audience into this movie and make them kind of accept it a little bit more. It was certainly a monster movie targeted at a young audience anyway, so they had that going for them. And it uh, it helped, I think, to do some of these things. It, it, again, I think it would have been hard for them to release the original version here. So um, let's see what... Uh, I was going to talk a little bit more about the effects, I think, a bit, but uh, let me go on. Let's play one more clip, because this is not too long after the one I just played. This is with um, also Steve Martin's character, Raymond Burr's character, Steve, and uh, Imiko, who is this young Japanese woman who helps him a little bit in the movie and, and actually it becomes a kind of a key uh, figure throughout the film. So listen to this. Emiko! Emiko! Steve! Steve Martin! Are you badly hurt? After last night, I'm lucky to be alive. I guess we're all living on borrowed time. Oh, Steve, what brought this upon us? I don't know, Emiko. I don't know. Your father, is he all right? Yes. He's meeting with the security officials now. Don't move, Steve. I'll try to get a doctor for you. It was still hard for me to believe that I could be lying here in a hospital alive when I think of the thousands of others dead and dying in the ruins around me. When I think back, only a few days ago, I was en route to Cairo, a few days layover in Tokyo. I was looking forward to a visit with an old college friend, Dr. Serizawa, a theoretical scientist who was gaining great recognition in the Far East for his unusual experiments. 
Yeah, so there you learn a little bit uh, more uh, with Steve and Imiko, and, and uh, you know, she um, she's a little worried about him. So and let's talk a little bit about Godzilla himself. Uh, the the costume the, they had never really done anything like this 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 suit that they used for Godzilla. Uh, let me first talk about actually the name itself, uh, Godzilla or Gojira in in Japanese. What they did is it's usually it's uh, been thought this was a blending. There were a couple different stories about his name, but the one that seems to come out the most is it was a blending of two Japanese words. Uh, the first being the word for uh, gorilla, which they say as gorira or G O R I R A, and also the word a blending of that word and the word they have for whale, which is kujira, K U J I R A. And it was originally thought that this uh, Godzilla creature was, or Gojira, was going to be this uh, gorilla whale-like monster, more of a sea-type creature than what he turns out to be more like a dinosaur creature. But they decided to change that, uh, and uh, they eventually uh, decided him to be, you know, this dinosaur-like monster. But even with that change, they decided to keep that original original name that they came up with. Now, the suit... Uh, was uh, the first one they designed, since they'd never really done this before, was about 200 pounds. It was uh, just a massive suit, heavy, and it was really difficult for the guy that performed in the suit, uh, Haru, Haru Nakajima, I think is his name, is how you say it. <laughs> H-A-R-U-O and then Nakajima. I can say that one, I think. He had a real hard time moving around in this suit. So you see Godzilla is kind of this lumbering creature throughout this movie. But he's uh, they use certain other little techniques at different times. They have some cables and things like that on the back of the costume. Uh, there was a couple for the eyes and one for the mouth to help with that. Batteries actually also were later used for other things. And to help it even, you know, do other little moment, movements and things. This was more for later, some of the later Godzilla movies. But, the, you know, it was pretty complex. And uh, the production was actually so complex uh, that the, the Japanese version, which is most of what the American version is really the footage used from, was it all, it was all storyboarded out. It actually cost, uh, the whole movie cost about a million dollars to make the first Gojira and then added to that, you know, money for the American version. So this was a pretty darn expensive movie for the mid-50s back then. And uh, they eventually constructed a different suit, though, a lighter one that was used for certain scenes in the movie. You'll see a couple of scenes where Godzilla is moving a little bit more uh, ag agile, uh, more agile, <laughs> with more agility. He, uh, But most of the time, again, he's kind of lumbering. They also changed his size a little bit uh, that they talk about in the movie. He uh, starts out really in the original version as being only about 150 feet tall. And that's probably believable because you see him in comparison to some of the buildings, some power lines, and things like that. But they, uh, for some reason in the American version, they wanted to up that up to like they made him, I think they say he's like 400 feet tall. But that's just a little ridiculous. That doesn't really match when you see his scale in the movie. 100, 150 feet, yeah, but 400 feet? He just doesn't look like that when he's walking, stomping around Tokyo. So, uh, but I'm probably getting a little ahead of myself. But I did want to get in some of the talk about the the costuming and and the name and that. Uh, I'll I'll fill in that a little bit more as we go. Talk a little bit more about the Godzilla roar that he makes and how that was created. Uh, but let's play uh, uh, next clip. I think this is 
right after the um, ocean attack happens, uh, which is the small fishing boat thing and the first sort of sign of, of Godzilla out there, or Gajira, in, in the, uh, the Japanese uh, Tokyo Bay. I don't follow you. You see, we don't know what it is we're dealing with. At 3.30 this morning, a ship from Tokyo was literally wiped from the surface of the ocean in a matter of seconds. Anything from the ship's radio? It said there was a blinding flash of light and the ocean burst into flame. Could have been a mine or a collision. Why would the radio men not report a mine or a collision? That's a good point. Well, whatever's being done, I'd like to find out about. All right, come with me. Yeah, so we we learn a bit about the attack there on the boat, and uh, you know Steve getting more involved in the the story. You know, like I said, it starts out after the attacks for uh, of Godzilla, and then it picks up. Uh, it kind of does a flashback uh, and, and bops back to, um, you know, eventually uh, moving up towards where Steve's been hurt and the attacks happened, and they sort of blend the time together. I like the way they kind of do that, rather than it just starting at the beginning and moving on. I, I think that's an interesting way. And it's kind of a very American film thing to do, you know, where they start off with something dramatic has already happened, and then they flash back to, well, how did we get to this point? And that's something that even is even done on television and movies to this day pretty regularly, almost to the point that it's become kind of a, a trope or cliche in, in films and TV, you know, where they hit you with something big, and, and then they go, oh, and 24 hours before or 48 hours before it's kind of a cheat to get you interested to watch the rest because it's like, oh my gosh, how did such and such happen? I must I must see, I must know, I must figure out why or see why this has happened. And I don't know, they, uh, but this is, you know, a very early uh, version of that. Let's talk a little bit more about the big bad lizard himself, uh, Godzilla. He seems to be a creature that can kind of go in the water and on land uh, almost equally well, kind of uh, reptilian or amphibian uh, it definitely needs to breathe because that becomes and a, a needs oxygen. That's an important part for the end of the movie. Um, the sound department, they, they worked on a lots of different ways of trying to create the Godzilla kind of roar that you hear. That, I can't do it. That, that, that was terrible. That wasn't Godzilla. You guys know what I'm talking about. I'll try to, I'll try to, I think it's in some of the clips. I was going to say, I'll try to just slip one in here, but I think it's in some, but, uh, they tried a lot of animal recordings. They tried to use a lot of like bears and other things and animals, but nothing was really sounding different enough, or you know, it was sounding too much like a normal uh, creature, uh, I guess, that you'd be familiar with. So, uh, one of the uh, sound guys, Akira Ifubika, I think is his name, Ukufuba. I don't know. Oh gosh, I apologize to people who know Japanese again. Uh, but he came up with uh, the Godzilla roar from, he basically took a, a piece of a resin-coated leather glove and he rubbed it up and down on the strings of what's called a contrabass, which is a double bass, or double bass, how do you say it, bass, bass? It's an instrument with strings, uh, a bass instrument with strings. And Rick Moyer probably knows that. Uh, but anyway, the it, it uh, reverberated this sound that was pretty good and they used that for his roar and his footsteps you know he has these like you know really thundering uh footsteps and that was just a kettle drum uh hitting it with a rope it are the godzilla footsteps that you have in this movie uh 
couple things. You know, he has this, to keep the radiation idea going in the movie, he has this sort of radioactive breath. You know, Godzilla has really bad breath. And he uses this to melt down different things and set stuff on fire throughout the movie. They had these electric, electrical towers that he attacks that they set up around the city to try to keep him out, which, of course, doesn't work. But uh, he uh, they, he uses his breath on these things. And one of the I thought was kind of a cool special effect, what, the way they did it, is they made these towers out of wax. And then they basically sort of blew them with hot air and heated them up in order for them to melt. So when Godzilla hits him with his radio, you know, radioactive breath, it looks like these things are, you know, metal and they're they're melting down and turning to, you know, molten again and and dissolving. So it's it, it's very well done. It's uh Oh, I, I did want to say before I forget, uh there is a colorized version of 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 Godzilla out there. And you know, I've I don't even know if I've ever seen that one, but uh I I kind of like it in black and white cuz I think it it adds a lot to the to the kind of eeriness of the whole situation, I guess. And and a lot of the Godzilla stuff and his attacks are done at night, and I think that was done for easier special effects-wise, and you don't get to see a real... You get to see the suit and the Godzilla in and, and a pretty clear uh, light, but not like just flat-out bright light, daylight, you know, and everything like that. And again, I think it makes it more scary and more eerie that way, too. Um one thing I thought was kind of interesting is this movie actually uh, received a, a, a Japanese Academy Award nomination for Best Picture, uh, and but it did lose another big movie that was out at the time. This was, the again, Gojira, but uh, the Seven Samurai film that was out uh, won. Uh, it won a, uh, the, uh, sorry, the Best Picture Japanese Academy Award, uh, but this film did actually win for Best Visual Effects. And it's the only Godzilla uh, movie to receive, you know, any kind of nomination for Best Picture, even if it was in a, a Japanese Academy Award situation. Uh, what else? Uh, the uh, the suit itself, again, I've already said, was really bulky, heavy, hot. They they would just get cups of water off the poor guy that was inside the suit while he was, you know, per- performing. And he could only move a few feet at a time. Uh, well, a little more than a few. I mean, I guess they, I'm reading here about 30 feet or so. He could move, but uh, really still a hard, hard way to make a buck, I guess. <laughs> uh, let's go on to, since I've talked a lot about Godzilla himself and, and, and the suit and the effects, let's go on to one of the, the big attack scenes uh, for, or I think this is actually one of the first ones, when uh, they're over on Odo Island, I think it's called. Uh, not Odo from Deep Space Nine. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, this is, uh, I think, when they discover him over there. Oh, and, and I think they also talk about, sorry, they, I think this is what they also talk about the creature himself and his origins. Look at the size of those footprints. It can safely be assumed that two million years ago, this Bondosaurus and other ancient reptiles roamed the Earth. It was known as the Jurassic Age. During this period, there was another species which we may call the intermediary animal, a cross between the land-living and the sea-living animals. Let us call this creature Godzilla, according to the legend of Odo Island. And judging from this photograph, this creature is over 400 feet tall. 
asking ourselves is how this animal happened to reappear after all these centuries and so near to the coast of Japan. One answer could be that some rare phenomenon of nature allowed this breed of the Jurassic age to reproduce itself and for a long span of time it had no reason to reappear to the world. But now that analysis of radioactivity of the creature's footprint shows the existence of Strandium 90 a product of the H-bomb. It is my belief that Gazella was resurrected due to the repeated experiments of H-bombs. Yeah, so that scene gives you some uh, info on Godzilla himself and what they think about him. Uh, a couple other uh, bits here of information. Uh, the There was a guy... Uh, the uh, the writer who wrote the American scenes, you know, Raymond Burr's scenes, his, his narration and all, this guy named uh, Al uh, C. Ward, he uh, worked on, uh, like, the old series Medical Center. And what they did is they contracted this writer. They, they said, basically, we'll give you either $2,500 or 5% of the profits to do this and write these scenes. This guy, Ward, he... Uh, he thought, nah, this movie is a monster movie. It's probably going to bomb. I'll just take the $2,500. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he, he later admitted that uh, through lifetime residuals and, and things, that if he had taken the 5% instead of the $2,500, he could have made up to like $5 million. So he kind of boo-boo there, Mr. Ward, about, uh, you know, I'd always go for the percentage. If you think you're doing good work, go for the percentage. See what happens. Take a, take a gamble, you know. So, um, but, you know, whatever. Uh, I think the, uh, I was talking earlier about the size of Godzilla. I think one of the reasons for uh, changing his spy, uh, his, sorry, his size was the difference between uh, the size of buildings and, and, and the, the height of buildings around in Tokyo versus things like uh, American skyscrapers and that. Uh, it, it, uh, they they thought that you know if they didn't use a number that was more like uh, that would be as high as buildings in New some of the buildings in New York that that the American audience would go 150 feet man he's not very big then right or something right but you know even though this was set in Japan and in Tokyo so well, what are you gonna do right uh, the scenes with Raymond Burr there was a lot of controversy over this there there are all different kinds of things out there about how long he actually took to film these scenes. Originally, Raymond Burr was contracted for just a single day. They figured he could get in and out, film all these little scenes that he had to do uh, in a day. But some of them are on location. Some of them are at, at different times of the day. They needed some daylight for a couple points. So to do all that in a day, pretty difficult. So Raymond Burr himself has actually gone on record and said that they actually did not do this all in a day, even though his contract was supposed to be only for a day. Uh, they spent about a week, about six days, he said, to do this, especially when they had to go out um, and do the daylight stuff on the island and all of that. Uh, there's actually even other reports that said he was in Japan filming scenes for like two months. So 
I'm buying right from the man himself. Raymond Burr said about a week, about six days to film this stuff. And that kind of jives and makes sense to me that they could do it that way. Uh, and, uh, and just, you know, get everything done. But in a day, probably not. No, I don't think so. So uh, let's play another clip here. Where are we at? Uh, we did the Godzilla. Okay, I think the next one is probably the big attack scene on Tokyo itself when he's coming in and they're all watching. One of the things I noticed when I was watching this again this morning is is how many times during the movie there's either two things that the people, when Godzilla is attacking, are doing. They're either running like crazy. Actually, there's maybe three things. They're either running away like crazy, tripping over each other, or they're, they're standing in like a group kind of yelling at Godzilla, swinging their arms, batting a club on the ground like they're going to somehow fight the monster. Or they're standing in just like stark terror or just sort of standing there kind of dumb thinking like, well, let's just watch Godzilla here. He won't stomp on us, right? You know, so <laughs> all three things seem a little odd to me. You know, uh, it would be like, okay, I think I should get out of here and and, and not be so close. I'm not going to sting here, sit here and wave a baseball bat around like I'm going to club Godzilla over the head and drag him off and carve him up for dinner. But, you know, it's it, it's just funny when I see the way some of those scenes were directed and what they did. And you can understand it. I mean, there's certainly the panic scenes of people running and screaming and, and, and being terrorized by this monster, you know, tromping through the streets makes sense but the ones that get me are the ones when they're just standing there in like a crowd like yeah get out of here godzilla i will hit you with my club <laughs> those are the funny ones to me a little bit but uh all right next up uh let's play another clip as godzilla takes on tokyo george here in tokyo time has been turned back too many years this is my report as it happens prehistoric monster the Japanese call Godzilla has just walked out of Tokyo Bay. He's as tall as a 30-story building. And now he's making his way toward the city's main line of defense. 300,000 volts of electricity strung around the city as a barrier. A barrier against Godzilla. So, yeah, Godzilla is looking pretty unstoppable. They shoot missiles at him, bullets, you know, the electrical lines, all kinds of stuff, and, and nothing seems to be hurting him or stopping him. He doesn't even really blink. 
it's uh, there are there is a scene though I guess with the jets that are flying uh, and shooting missiles at him that kind of seem to bug him. He keeps swatting at them, trying to hit them like they're flies, you know, going around him with his little arms, his little Godzilla arms, swinging at the sky. But he doesn't bring one down. I don't think in this one that I remember seeing a plane. He doesn't he doesn't make contact with any of them. But he eventually leaves, goes back out into the water, and uh, things are looking pretty bad. You know, the city's pretty torn up, and this is about where the the flashback stuff catches up with the present, and they're trying to come up with a way to uh, to kill him. And uh, they eventually discover there's this scientist guy, I think it's Dr. Sarazawa in the movie, uh, who, uh, yeah, Sarazawa, and uh, he's got this eye patch, and he looks kind of crazy, but he's sort of a scientist guy. He's created this... Uh, this thing, this device, and I'm not really sure why he was doing this. I don't remember them just stating, like, why are you working on this? But maybe he discovers it by accident, like sometimes happens in science, things discovered by accident. But uh, he discovers this way to basically pull the dissolved oxygen, oxygen and water out. Uh, uh, and uh, basically when he tests this on an aquarium full of fish, they all turn basically uh, – the um, they're gone. They're like, <laughs> one second there's all these bubbles. Next second, you know, the fish, the only thing that's left is their bones. The flesh is even gone. It, it just chews it up and, and spits it out. So it's it's pretty dramatic. It's not that they just don't just die. I guess they thought it would make it look cooler. I'm not really sure how depleting the oxygen would would pull the the the, the fish and and the, the, you know, the fish guts and all, all of the the fishiness except for their bones you know how it would just destroy that as, as it does it it almost works like an acid which i don't get chemically how that well i'm thinking this you know it's a monster movie what do you want so he has this thing that that can destroy the oxygen in in, in water so they decide that he's got this bigger one kind of around and a, a bigger little it looks kind of like a round device that opens up and when it opens all these bubbles come out of it makes it look like it's doing something but they, they've got this bigger one, and they say, hey, well, Godzilla's out there in the water. Why don't we just sort of drop this down, and that should take care of him, right? He needs to still breathe down there. And rather than Godzilla, when this starts to happen, you know, hey, why don't I just get out of the water and go on shore? But I guess it catches him. And, uh, well, you know, he looks like he gets killed in this movie. You see his bones at the end. But Godzilla, of course, comes back in other films. But I've got a, that's a little ahead of me. Uh, the, let's play this clip here. I think this is about this oxygen device uh, or destroyer and, and them talking about that. Hi, Amico. You've been sleeping very nervously. Oh, God. Anything new develop? Nothing new will develop unless... Unless what? I was shown a terrible secret, which is probably the only weapon which could destroy Godzilla. What is it? I promised Dr. Sarazawa never to reveal his secret to anyone. Emiko. Emiko, last night Tokyo was destroyed. Tomorrow it might be Osaka or Yokohama. If you can't help, you must. When I went to see Dr. Sarazawa, I had intended to tell him about Ogata Mi, but there was something he wanted to show me first. Okay. 
Dr. Serizawa had been experimenting with oxygen when he came upon a terrible chemical discovery, a way to destroy all oxygen and water, thereby disintegrating all living matter. An amount no larger than a baseball could turn Tokyo Bay into a graveyard. Serizawa had found a terrible destructive power, and until he could find a counteracting good that would come from his discovery, he didn't want the world to know his secret. Yeah, so they've got uh, so they've got a uh, a way of of killing Godzilla. They at least think, and they decide to do it. And they need to take this uh, little device, this um, oxygen destroyer, down right into the water. Two div- two divers go down to do it in these deep sea kind of uh, outfits. Sarazawa with the eye patch, who created it, uh, who feels a little cursed. And this is an interesting thing in this movie. A little. Uh, note that uh, the scientists you know and this is again i think a play on the whole nuclear weapons and bombs and 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 that that the guy who creates this this very deadly device uh, he feels a little like he's done a bad thing he's 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 messing with things he probably shouldn't mess with and sarazawa that is and he goes down along with this other guy i think it's imiko's like fiance her her betrothed something like that and they both go down in the water, uh, and Sarazawa stays behind, and the other guy goes back up, and, and he kind of cuts his line, Sarazawa, and he, he sa- sort of sacrifices himself for, uh, you know, because he thinks he, he he's done a nasty thing here, and uh, he can't quite live with that. But, yeah, interesting. I, I don't know if it was really necessary. I can understand why they had it that way in the movie, but uh, it's... Um, I thought, uh, you know, it makes sense to me. So Godzilla's down there. They get the little oxygen destroyer and bubble, 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 boil in trouble. And Godzilla's just sort of bouncing around. He kind of pops out of the his head out of the water a little bit, you know, leans back, falls back in the water. And uh, then you see a quick shot of his skeleton. You know, he's, he's there kind of laying on the ocean floor. And then it, you see a skeleton Godzilla uh, so it looks like it kills him, even though he does come back for several other Godzilla movies in the future. Whether it was another Godzilla that was created or maybe that wasn't really him that was dead. I, I, I always, I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's me, maybe it's from a bad memory. But I, for some reason, and I watched it today uh, again, but I, for some reason in the original, I thought that it was a little bit more subtlety on like whether it killed him or not. But this, there's, there's flat out. You can see his, his bones. It just, it's him at one point, and then his bones are there. So, maybe I'm just not remembering it since it's been a while since I've watched this movie. Maybe I wasn't remembering the, uh, it correctly. But uh, let me play one more little clip from the movie here for you. This is just sort of the end scene. Not a lot of dialogue, I don't think, in this. And then I'll come back and we'll, we'll uh, wrap this up. And I've got a couple of comments from listeners too. People of the world, Godzilla is dead. Give us strength to rebuild our beloved land. He said, be happy together.
menace was gone, so was a great man. But the whole world could wake up and live again. Yep, so Godzilla's dead, but, uh, you know, of course, the idea, one of the thoughts of this movie is is that it's kind of this anti-nuclear statement that if you mess around with, with things like that, bad things will happen. Not only will people be blown up and get radiation sickness and die from, you know, the bombs themselves, but you'll unleash Mother Nature and the revenge of, you know, the revenge of Mother Nature that will take place will be, you know, you'll form monsters like Godzilla and Gojira will come and attack you and destroy your town. So don't do it. Just don't do it. <laughs> it it's a great movie. It, it's it's very uh, intense in a way. It's very serious. It, it Again, a lot of times people that don't know Godzilla very well or did not grow up and watch a lot of these movies maybe just know the sort of jokey, funny Godzilla. Heck, I think it was even turned into an animated cartoon show at one time. But this is mean, bad, baddie Godzilla here. No little baby Godzilla beside him that he's teaching how to use his fire breath. None of that. Although I have seen those movies and enjoy them as well for what they are. But this this is kind of a classic here, along with some other monster movies, them and some others from the 50s that are uh, just, just great to see. And uh, definitely check them out. Uh, it's cool that you can just watch these on Netflix. I think they have both versions. I think you can watch the original Gojira and Godzilla on Netflix. There's a lot of other information out there. Again, in a, in a podcast, I have to pick and choose. Uh, one one last thing I'll say is that this movie, they played around with the, the, the screen uh, ratio a little bit. It was really kind of more of a little bit of a widescreen movie. But they they cropped it down for the American version in essence, and that was due to movie screens themselves and movie theaters and, and that. Not a big difference. Uh, I think it was something like 1.85 to one versus like 1.7 something to one, uh, a slight difference. But I think the re-release of of it on DVD, I think, restored that. The re-release, I should say, of I think Gojira from maybe about four or five years ago. I think it was re-released on on DVD in around 2006. So both are worth watching just to kind of compare and contrast the two films. And uh, But I love it. It's Godzilla. What, what, what's not to love, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, that's about enough for me talking about the movie, uh, except I'll respond a little to the next couple of clips. First one up, we've got a, a comment, I think, from Dan from Shepherd on the Forum about Godzilla. And I'll be back in a moment. Hey, everybody. It's Dan, Shepherd on the Forums. And I want to tell you the story about me when I was you know, roughly seven, six, somewhere around there. I, I was pretty young at the time, and me and my best friend, we found ourselves in a video rental store, and we found this old black-and-white movie that we really, really wanted to see. And I know they say, you know, kids these days, they don't, they just don't get black-and-white movies. They're just not, they're just not cool, right? Well, that's not always the case. And in our case... Us two seven-year-old kids, we took this old black-and-white movie home, and we watched it, and we loved it. Now, of course, I'm talking about Godzilla, because 
that's what this podcast is about. That old Godzilla movie, and I have to say that was one. That's one of my biggest childhood memories. Like, there are little pieces of my childhood that I remember, and that's definitely one of them. Was getting the Godzilla movie from this rental store and watching it with my best friend. And I, I don't know what to say. We suddenly were just like involved, so involved with this franchise. We wanted it. We wanted to watch every Godzilla movie there was, and we. We found as many as we could get our hands on. I mean, they didn't have Netflix back then. They they only had video rental stores, and they had, like, Godzilla 1 and Godzilla 2. And we just, we watched as many as we could possibly get. And, and I mean, we watched the Godzilla 2000 movie when it came out in theaters. That's how much we loved it. We loved Godzilla. Godzilla was one of my childhood memories of just, like, that's such a cool thing. We wanted to be Godzilla, you know, for kids. Of course, we want to be a big dinosaur that shoots nuclear bursts out of its mouth and things but the whole thing behind it it just I don't know what it was but I remember playing a Godzilla video games and all that stuff but it seriously that was like my life in childhood it was one of my favorite things ever and it was something that I shared with one of my best friends ever too so I think that's always part of it but that old movie the old black and white movie it was so it was so good I I I probably remember it now because I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember it now as being, I, I think I remember it from kind of a childhood perspective where, you know, everything's just like amazing and that's basically the idea of it, but it was, it was that. I loved it. Oh, we loved it so much. I will have to watch it again soon sometimes because I, I imagine I'll love it just the same, but yeah. Anyway, that's pretty much all I have to say that. Godzilla being that great childhood memory, I loved it so much. So, that's 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 all. So, thank you, Rico, for doing a Godzilla podcast and reminding me about one of my favorite childhood memories and how much I love Godzilla. So, all right. That's all I have to say. Well, thank you, Dan. Thanks for sending in some comments about one of your uh, favorite films and childhood memories of Godzilla. It, it's it's refreshing to me since we're, you know, I'm a bit older, just a little bit older than you, that we both kind of have a similar feel for this film. So it's kind of nice to know that, like you said, you know, people, I think sometimes uh, kids these days don't appreciate older movies or whatever. But I, my younger son is kind of into older and more uh, obscure things, too, and, and less you know, going to see the latest and greatest uh, movie that's out in the theaters or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, thanks so much. I, I'm glad that I was able to refresh and, and bring back some, hopefully, some memories of your childhood and, and a fun one here with Godzilla. Next up, we have Rick Moyer. Uh, Rick has got a special song for us, too, I believe. But here are some of his comments and thoughts on Godzilla and then a special song. And, and right after Rick's uh, performance, I will uh, be back and we'll wrap up today's show. So take it away, Rick. Hey, Rico, this is Rick Moyer, Moyer777 on the forums. So glad that you're covering Godzilla. I, I don't know why it is so appealing to me, but I think, you know, you know everybody that listens to Treks and Sci-Fi, if you know me, you know I like cheesy sci-fi. And this in particular was, you know, you, you knew there was a guy in a suit, a rubber suit or something, and you, you just knew it, but you accepted it. But there was something about seeing this big monster crash into the buildings and the explosions and the fire and the sparks and the and the cool voice that they gave Godzilla and all the monsters that he battled with. 
I particularly liked it a lot. And when I would see it on TV on a Saturday morning or or on the weekend sometime, um, I would always watch them. You know, really bad dubbing, you know. I mean, most of the time it was, you know, made in Japanese and then, of course, dubbed into English. And, you know, that's where we get all that, the fun stuff, like the karate movies where the guy's lips move, but it doesn't come out the exact same way as what you're hearing. And I just always enjoyed that. Um, Specifically, though, I liked all the special effects because just crashing into things. And and I would make my own cities and break them down, you know, out of cardboard boxes. And I'd light them on fire and stuff, too, much to my parents' chagrin. So anyway, I decided to do a song in honor of Godzilla. And so I went out searching for something that I could do as a parody. And I found a song that um, was one of my favorites as a teenager. I jammed on this quite a bit, and I decided not to do a parody. I decided just to do a cover song of the Blue Oyster Cult classic, Godzilla. So this is my tribute to Godzilla, my interpretation of that particular song. Uh, I, I rocked it out, had a great time with it, and I want to share it with you. So here you go. Let me know what you think. I hope you really enjoy it. I'll have it up on uh, StarTrekParodies.com. Um, after the the podcast airs and you can download it, put it on your iPod or whatever and jam to uh, my rendition of the classic Blue Oyster Cult song, Godzilla. Thanks, Rico. I'll see you next week.
cavalcade of electrifying horror. Raging through the streets on a rampage of total destruction. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Incredible Titan of Terror. Wiping out a city of six million in a holocaust of flames. Just wait. Oh, thanks so much, Rick. That rocked. That's an awesome song. Awesome comments. Just uh, you are amazing. Please, everyone, check out Rick's uh, show, Take Him With You, and his uh, sites, uh, the Star Trek parody site, and and just all kinds of cool stuff. He does He does a lot more than Star Trek parodies these days, especially since I do other podcasts besides Star Trek, which leads me to my next uh, comment here. I want to give you guys an update on the schedule for October for Treks in Sci-Fi. Today was Godzilla, of course. Next week on the show, October 9th, we're going to look at the Voyager episode, Living Witness. I think this is from around season four or five of the series. You guys can find it. Living Witness. It's a cool episode, uh, and I, I think it'll be a fun one to cover. Uh, then on the 16th, you're going to get a special show, probably kind of late in the day that day, because we're going to get together, a group of us, our, the Doctor Who group, uh, also this time including me. Uh, we are going to talk about the second part to series or season six of the new Doctor Who. So that'll be, I think, I think it's Kenny, Casey, uh, Meds, and myself talking Doctor Who and what we thought about the last part of this season. They just did the uh, season finale last night, which I really enjoyed. So uh, it's going to be fun. I'm glad we're, we're talking about that soon, only in a couple of weeks while it's still kind of fresh in my mind. So uh, that's on the 16th. Uh, the 23rd of uh, October, that Sunday, is going to be a Deep Space Nine episode. It's called Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night. And for those that may not know the title, uh, that's a Kira kind of episode, which involves uh, her learning some information about her mother. Uh, and that, I think, will be an interesting character and, and good story to look at. And then on the 30th, October 30th, just a day before Halloween, my idea for this, I, I, I listed it on, on the site. Uh, I called it Scary and Spooky Stories. This is what I'm hoping, and you guys listen up because I want your help on this one. The listeners, I want you guys to record maybe a story that you share at Halloween with your kids or friends or family or one that you've always liked. Uh, try to keep them maybe around, you know, five minutes, five, six minutes each, give or take. Uh, but but create an audio file of that and, and get it over to me. Either email it or FTP it or figure out some way, Dropbox, whatever you want to do. Get me that recording uh, and, and don't forget about this. Try to do it, you know, before October 30th. <laughs> you don't need to wait till October 29th to do these kinds of things. But record a little spooky or scary story, a little Halloween type tale and then get that to me, and I'm going to play them on the show. That's the point. I'll do a couple, of course, too, but I'd like, uh, I'd love to have, you know, 10 of them from different people send them in, and uh, and I'll just play them for a special Halloween treat here on Treks and Sci-Fi for the 30th 
of October. So that will be uh, on that. And uh, that's going to do it for this week's Treks in Sci-Fi. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff I could have talked about Godzilla. It did really well when it first released in the box office. Uh, all kinds of cool little t- trivia out there on Wikipedia and IMDb about the movies. Check them out if you haven't seen it again you know, in a while. Check out Gojira and Godzilla. A King of Monsters, and and I think you'd enjoy them, and definitely watch them if you've never watched either one. You definitely you know worth your time. You're worth your 80, 80 so minutes. I think it takes to watch the movie. Uh, check it out, uh, and I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, two last things, and how many times have I said last things? Uh, one reviews on iTunes always great. Love those. Do it if you can. And uh, PayPal donations still being accepted. I just had to uh, pay off uh, DreamHost, the host for Treks in Sci-Fi, the podcast, the hosting, the sites, all that good stuff, the daily picks, uh, every, everything that I do. Uh, so if you want to put a donation out via PayPal, there are links on the main treksinsci-fi.com website, on the forum, uh, just a couple of dollars, whatever you guys can do. If you've not done something yet, uh, it'd be always appreciated no matter what. So, uh, that is it for this week. Hope you enjoyed this special monster sized, <laughs> get that monster sized treks in sci-fi. And I'll be back next week again with uh, a Voyager episode, Living Witness. And until then, everyone, take care. Enjoy your week. Uh, I hope the weather is still hanging on where you're at and maybe not too cold yet. So take care. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Thank